بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Seems quiet today Alhamdulillah Insha'Allah Ta'ala I'm really, I'm really, really excited about this topic That we're going to be studying Insha'Allah Ta'ala Which is the topic of Al-Fiqh But we still need to do a little bit of introduction And a little bit of Understanding Because one of the major objectives of this module is for you to be able to understand where the study of fiqh or how the study of fiqh fits into the wider perspective of studying Islam. And particularly the benefits and some of the drawbacks of the madhahib, the madhab. Some of the benefits and some of the, the drawbacks so that you can maximize the benefits and minimize the drawbacks. We had a little discussion last time on the history of fiqh and how Islamic law developed what we call tarikh al-tashri'ah how Islamic legislation developed. And we got to the point where we started talking about the madhahib, we talked about how there were lots of madhabs and how really what, what distinguished one madhab from another or what allowed these four madhahib to flourish was not the quality of their Imam necessarily but more the quality of their students and you could argue you could argue that those two are related that the quality and the, the knowledge of the Imam led to the students who would serve the madhab but it is really the students who made the madhab what it is because it's the students who made that effort to record the opinions of the Imam and to almost, not quite force, but to sort of strongly impose their, you know, that way of doing things upon their students and them upon their students that led to something that resembles a, a madhab. So what I want to talk about today are kutub al-madhab, the books, the books, which make up a madhab. And every madhab is a little different, but there are some things that you can take as uh, you can take for granted. Generally, there are, as is all in the case in almost all of the fields of Islamic knowledge, there are books which are considered to be from the mutaqaddimin, any from the early scholars. Now, 
it's a little difficult now because when we use the word classical books, we might use the word classical for a book which it was only written 600 years ago, which for us is classical, but in terms of the madhab is from Al-Kutub Al-Mutaakhirah. It's from the books which were written in the later period. So classical is not a great word, but there are early books and there are later books. Generally, the early books in any field, the madhabs are no exception. Generally, what you'll find about the early books is that the early books are a little harder to study because they're a little less organized because as of yet the madhab hasn't quite you know like really sort of uh, you know found all of its limits in in a certain sense and certainly you know something that is useful in this is to realize that in terms of the madhab there is obviously the founding imam but then there are certain figures who come along later and those figures represent almost they are like the second and the third imam of the madhab. So there's no doubt, for example, in the madhab uh, of al-imam al-shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala, there are various figures who come along. Probably the most famous of them would be al-imam al-nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala who comes along and is almost the second imam of the madhab. And so those sort of second secondary figures also have a major influence upon, upon the madhab and upon the different opinions that exist within it. Because remember that the Imam hasn't given one opinion. Sometimes the Imam will give two opinions. Very commonly, an Imam al-Shafi'i, we know from when he was in Iraq and when he was in Egypt, he changed over half of his opinions. And bearing in mind that an Imam, this Imam, you know, al-Imam Ahmed, for example, is not sitting in his gathering for the purpose of making a madhab. He's sitting for the purpose of teaching. And so it can easily be the case that he may give one answer to someone and a completely different answer to somebody else. Because he is not there to give you... A, he's not like, okay, today I'm going to found my madhab. Oh, take your pens out. He's just teaching. In fact, he forbade his students from writing his opinions down. And it was the students of his students who wrote the opinions down. Bear in mind that the students have a major influence. How many masail in the Hanafi madhab did Abu Yusuf and Muhammad ibn al-Hasan rahimahumullah ta'ala change from the opinion of Abu Hanifa? So the madhab has opinions in it. These secondary imams, these kind of sort of revivers of the madhab that come along and there are many in every madhab, but there's, you know, two or three sort of major figures that come along. When these people come along, they have their own ikhtiyarat, their own choices. Bearing in mind that these people are not muqallidun, they're not following their imam blindly. 
They have their own opinions, their own choices, their own decisions. And sometimes they will go well outside of the madhab. Like Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala who is famous for this. Who is, you know, probably the, the, one of the major imams in the Hanbali madhab after al-Imam Ahmed. One of the revivers of the madhab. But he's more than happy to put the madhab on the side and pick his own opinion. So you have within the madhab a lot of, not only do you have from the imam himself, the founding imam, different opinions, not only do you have his students changing his opinions, but you also have these people who are not purists. They are not purely going to stick to the madhab. You have purists, you have, and generally their books are valued more than the ones who are Unless, yani, we're going to come to some of the books in the Hanbali Madhab that are valued more because they are pure to the opinions of the Imam and the early, the early sort of opinions of the Madhab. But you also will get people who are not purists. They are, maybe you can call them reformists in the Madhab. Where they're, they're, they'll just pick an opinion that's not even in their Madhab and take it to be correct. And that will, you know, that sort of change tells you that a madhab is pretty much a living thing. Yes, it has a huge attachment to its founder, but it is living, developing, changing, and whatever. So you have books from the early scholars of the madhab, and you have books from the later scholars of the madhab. And you would expect the later books to generally be a bit more organized and a bit more firm because they've had that time to sort of study and evaluate all these different opinions and sort of choose the right ones. But even in these later books, you have that same feeling of people who are, you know, people who are particularly influenced by a particular scholar in that madhab and they prefer his opinions over others or they prefer his choices over others. And so there's no doubt, and you should be in no doubt, that there is ijtihad going on within the madhab. The madhab is not, a, you know, something that died with its founder. It is something that is, there is ijtihad going on. There is, you know, decisions are being made, choices are being made, preferences, are, you know, things are being preferred over others within the madhab. And when we look at the books of the madhab in general, what we see is that there are levels of books because remember the madhab is really intended to be a curriculum. And you know, we're gonna ask ourselves the question. And I'm not even gonna ask you the question, is it required for an ordinary Muslim to follow a madhab? I'm gonna ask you a different question. Is it even possible for an ordinary Muslim to follow a madhab? And that's the question we might answer in the last class. I want you to, to keep that in your mind. Not the question, is it allowed or is it wajib? We can answer that secondary. You know, is it fard for a Muslim to follow a madhab? I want you to start by asking yourself a question. Is it even possible for a Muslim, a regular Muslim to follow a madhab? In any real sense of the word. So that is something you can come to your own conclusion about. 
And the scholars differed over this. So you don't have to, you know, like, it's not like there's no ta'asub here. Anyway. We're not going to be, you know, forcing an opinion upon somebody. The scholars differed. But it's, I think the first question every one of you must ask is, is it even possible for a regular, you know, non a Muslim who has not studied his religion or her religion extensively, is it even possible for them to follow a madhab? And only through studying the books of the madhab, you will come to make a decision about whether it's possible or not. And therefore, if you decide it is possible, is it fard or is it recommended or is it mubah or is it haram? And we can come to this conclusion after this is one of the major things that we want you to take from this particular course. So the books of the madhab, the madhab is intended to be a curriculum. Okay, so like any good curriculum, you would expect that there are books for different levels. You know, if you've got a curriculum for studying engineering, you would expect that there are year one books and year two books and year three books and year four books. And level master's level books and doctorate level books. Jamil. So how does that look like? From the point of view of the madhab, what do these books look like in the madhab? In any madhab. We're not talking about any specific madhab here. The most basic books and the beginner's level and the ones that we are going to study in, our, in the next uh, seven, six or seven weeks, inshallah ta'ala, are the books that simply state the opinions with no disagreement and no dalil. So there's two things that categorize the level one books in the madhab. Number one, there is no ikhtilaf mentioned. It is not mentioned that the imam had two opinions or three opinions or his students had this opinion or he changed his opinion or you know, an imam came later on and said that his opinion is not correct. There is no mention of any other madhab. There is no mention of any other opinion. There is one opinion and that's it. And that is the one chosen by the author. And again, the author may be an absolute purist in the sense that he's going to strictly stick to what he can find from the imam. Or he may be sort of a reformist type figure who is going to choose what he thinks is the stronger opinion within the madhab. Or he may be someone who's not even writing in the madhab at all, but we're going to kind of put those on the side. You know, he may be somebody who is not writing in the madhab at all. He's writing a book to teach you the rajah, the correct opinion. And I think that you can pretty much argue, and I, and I think it's a fair point, that there, there's almost consensus on this, that the madhab does not contain the rajih in every mas'ala. It does not contain the correct opinion in every mas'ala. And I think anyone who says that the madhab contains the correct opinion in every mas'ala, this person in reality is not aqil, is not a person of intellect, and is not a person of knowledge. And you see some people, they will say this, you know, they will say ridiculous. I mean, for some of them will say things like absolutely ridiculous statements. But in reality, nobody of sound intellect believes that the madhab contains every correct opinion about every issue. So distinguish between this. 
when you're learning a madhab, you're not learning the correct opinion. You are learning a curriculum of which some of it will be correct and some of it guaranteed will be wrong. But you're learning it for another purpose, which we will some soon come to learn. The purpose of having a consistent, regular curriculum that you can follow and develop and learn from. And then you can branch out and choose the correct opinions later on. Anyways, the point I have here is we're going to put those books that deal with the correct opinion on the side. We're studying a madhab today. We're not interested in the correct opinion today. We are interested in the correct opinion for our ibadah, for our worship. But today we're interested in the correct opinion for the madhab. For the madhab. So we're going to put aside those books where the author makes tarjih outside of the madhab. So the author basically says, you know, this is how you should pray. For example, we're going to put aside the books on how to pray by the likes of Sheikh Al-Albani, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, uh, and you know, all these other people who've written on how to pray, because they are not confining themselves to a madhab. They are telling you how to pray properly. And that is completely different from these beginner level books in the madhab. These beginner level books in the madhab are supposed to be within the opinions of the madhab. And you can't find, in this Hanbali book we're going to do, you can't find a Shafi'i opinion from the beginning until the end. In general. This is only within the madhab. But the, what these books are categorized by is that they have no ikhtilaf, no disagreement in them, and no dalil, no dalil. There is no, the Prophet ﷺ said this, Allah said this, there is no dalil. Does that mean that they have based it upon no dalil? That they just picked it out of thin air? No, that's not the case. The madhab, all of these opinions, and all of these imams, based their opinions upon dalil. But their dalil is either rajih, or it is marjuh. It's either valid, as in it's the correct opinion, or it's marjuh, it's the incorrect opinion. There is another opinion which is correct, and this opinion is incorrect. But the point here is that it's based upon dalil. Why then are, is there no dalil in these beginner level books so that you can focus your attention upon the opinions themselves and you have basically a summary in all of the to topics and chapters of fiqh, you have a summary of what the position of the madhab is according to the author of this book. Because the author is still going to have to make decisions. The author is going to have to choose which of the two opinions of the imam to take, which of his students to prefer over others. The author is going to have to make that choice. So at any one time when you read a book, you are still reading, you are not reading Imam Ahmed's book on his madhab. You are reading the yani, effort of generation after generation after generation of students and the author's choice about which of those is correct and which of those isn't. And I think this point is fundamental in answering the question about whether it is possible or whether it is wajib to follow a madhab. I think it's fundamental to understand this, that whatever you are following today in your 
Hanafi, Shafi'i, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali Madhab is a snapshot from a particular author who has chosen a particular set of opinions from that Imam. Because as we know, none of the Imams, not even one of them, wrote a book saying, this is my Madhab. Rather, what they, you have is you have a, you know, a, a, a tussle, a tug of war between students and student students and generations and choosing this one and people who come and reform and you have so whenever you whatever you are following in your quote-unquote madhab today is a snapshot from a particular scholar who makes a particular choice about what that madhab actually is so the first level has no dalil and no ikhtilaf it's easy to memorize, it's easy to learn, it's pretty easy to learn. Um, and it just tells you, this is the opinion of the madhab, there you go. Take it. The second level, or another level beyond, perhaps you can say it's the second level. Uh, or we can also say something about this first level as well is that it is this first level, another condition, a third condition is, it must be highly summarized. It must not contain lots of complicated, you know, not masail that are not in use much. It must only contain the most important issues. So this, this beginner's level book would not contain any... Uh, or many, not as any, but not many complicated issues. It would be, you know, and, and by complicated, I mean rare, probably more than complicated, because, you know, there might be a basic issue about praying, which is complicated, but, uh, you know, there might be an issue about whether water should be a, a large amount or a small amount, which is complicated, but there shouldn't be issues in there that are rare and difficult to, you know, sort of, not much in practice or that are you know sort of excessively complicated those would not be in the, those books so you have these three sort of characteristics of this beginners level of books particularly among the later scholars maybe the earlier scholars might not be so they might throw some dalil in there they might throw some uh, you know a disagreement here and there they might also put in some complicated issues but Certainly in the later, the, 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 the sort of the books that came later on, you would expect these books that came later on to be, to contain these three things. They should not contain any disagreement. They should not contain any proof. And they should not contain a great deal of complexity. They should be easy for you. Because this is intended to be the key that opens the door. It is not intended that you should learn this and then practice your religion without dalil. That is not the intention of the, without evidence. That is not the intention of the author. The intention of the author is, you memorize this. You memorize it. You keep it in your mind. Then all of the dalil you learn when you study Bukhari and you study Muslim and you study the Qutb al-Sunan and you study things like Bulugh al-Maram or whatever it may be from the books of, or Umdat al-Ahkam or whatever it may be from the books of, uh, the books of hadith and you know you go through all of this uh, this study 
you're basically going to be slotting the hadith in to this basic text that you've studied. And when you study the Quran, all of these ayat that you've learned, you're going to be slotting them in to this issue. And when you go on to study more complicated books in the madhab, which mention dalil, you're then going to also, you're then also going to be able to, you know, slot everything in to this basic framework that you're being given. You know, this is like the, this is like, you know, when someone says like, this is your sketch drawing. You know, it's, it's your basic outline, which you're then going to put color in. You're then going to put, you know, details in. At the moment, this is just, you know, a sketch of what, what it's going to look like. It's just a sketch. So it's easy to do. It's easy to learn. And it's easy then for you later on to slot all of the dalil that you learned because the dalil could be 10 proofs, 20 proofs. It could be proofs that have disagreement about whether they're authentic or not. It could be, you know, issues of principles of, of usul al-fiqh. It could be principles, qawaid shari'a. It could be loads and loads of complicated things. So what the author did is say, I'm going to take those out for now while you get a grip on what the madhab actually is. And then what I'm going to do is slowly introduce these different aspects. So as you move up in the madhab, what happens? The dalil becomes, you start getting dalil. You know, so in the next level upwards, you start getting dalil. You might not get still any ikhtilaf. You might not get a great deal of disagreement. But you're going to start getting some, you know, evidences for, uh, for each particular thing. You may even get those evidences in the books which explain the basic texts. Like the basic text that we're going to do, it has explanations, books that have been written to explain it. They may also mention, you know, the dalil. And they themselves may con be considered to be almost, you know, books that form part of the madhab. You know, some of these explanations themselves are considered to be, you know, major sort of, sort of references for the madhab themselves. Especially if the explanation was written by a famous scholar of the madhab, you know, like he may well include dalil and, and, and other things. And many of these basic level books are also summaries of more complicated books. So it may not be the case that the basic level book is written first. In fact, often it isn't written first. Often what is the basic book may well be written last of all. And it may well be written as a sort of a summary of a much more complicated established book in the madhab. So this is the, this is the book of the madhab. And then from that book, sort of other more less complicated books are, are written. So you expect to start getting some evidences. As you move up, you expect that you start getting more detail, more complexity. So before you might have been told that there are, for example, in this basic book that we have here, we are told that there are two or three categories, we're told three, categories of pure, of purifying water, of water that purifies you. We're told there are three. In the next level up, we're told that there are four. But the fourth one is 
like really rare and kind of strange. And when I tell it to you, you guys are going to be scratching your head. Yeah. So it's kind of like a little bit strange, which is why it was taken out. So as you move up, you expect to get more categories, a little bit more detail, more information, more issues, more masail, and more in the way of evidences. As you move up again, probably, as we said, that the second level would be categorized by more evidence and more complexity, more detail. You could probably argue probably more complexity would come first and then maybe more, then maybe after that there would be, you know, sort of evidence as mentioned. But as you go then up a level, you're going to start to get ikhtilaf within the madhab. These are the more complicated books of the madhab. You're going to start to get disagreements among within the madhab and the different opinions and the reason why we prefer one opinion in the madhab over the other opinion in the madhab. And not every book will have that in. You know, some books will just, the, the author will, will write a really complicated, really high level book, but he will not mention the different opinions. He will just choose which he thinks to be the correct one. But this is generally how it's categorized. Until you reach probably what is the end of the road where you reach a book by a person in a madhab, about a madhab, except that he mentions the other madhahib in there to a greater or lesser extent. Now, he may not mention all of them. He may not mention uh, all of the detail or all of the evidences, but he at least gives some reference to the other madhahib to a greater or lesser extent. Now bear in mind, we're not talking about books of comparative fiqh. Books of comparative fiqh like Bidayatul Mujtahid, these books are not written in a madhab in the first place. They are written to compare between the madhabs or the madhahib from the beginning. They're, they're, written, they're not written to follow a madhab, they're just written to show you what the Hanafis and Malikis and Shafi'is and Hanbalis said about things. Or in the case of Bidayatul Mujtahid, with the exception of the Hanbalis, because the Hanbalis are not any included in any great degree. So we're talking about a book in the Madhab, written about the Madhab, except that it expands to cover some elements of the other Madhahib. And that is probably the end of the road in terms of the madhab, and I'm really simplifying it, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but I'm trying to just give you an idea. That's probably the end of the road when it comes to the madhab, and after that you're into books of comparative fiqh, where you just make a standard comparison between the madhahib, and you also uh, have a separate track, which is the track of, uh, of uh, fiqh sunnah where you're studying, you know, the hadith and you're studying Dalil and you're studying, you know, for example, your other studies, your tafsir and whatever. And they'll all meet up at the end. You know, they'll all meet up at the end. But in terms of the madhab as a curriculum, the last exam is where you start dealing with the other madhahib. You start reaching out to the other madhahib. And if the author is particularly inclined, he may even make tarjih of the other madhab. He may even prefer the opinion of the other 
madhab over his madhab, uh, which is a characteristic of certain people. Yani certain, certain scholars are known for this. And we mentioned, for example, Ibn Taymiyyah uh, and others. Then, of course, don't forget, let's not forget, you have some scholars who are not going to follow any of the former dhahib, and so they're also outside of our discussion, uh, and they are going to go back to, you know, their own ijtihad, which, is, which gives no consideration to the madhahib at all. And obviously, one of the most famous people, and you've studied part of the book, is Al-Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, who is you know sort of well known for this so we kind of understood a little bit about the context of the books of the madhab the books of the madhab so now we come on to our topic at hand and it is the hanbali madhab the madhab which is attributed to al-imam ahmad muhammad ibn hanbal rahimahullah ta'ala this is where we start the ta'asub yeah the Imam Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Anyway, inshallah, I'll try and uh, I'll try and uh, not to I'll try not to put in too much of the uh, you know the what's the word any the, the excessive uh, praise of the madhab or whatever. Uh, actually, in all honesty, uh, I you can argue a, a serious point that it really if you see a madhab as a curriculum. It really doesn't matter which madhab you study because ultimately that isn't going to affect what you consider to be the correct way of praying or fasting or whatever. It is only going to be a question of which of the madhab is easier to learn. And that is then going to come down to two issues, in my opinion. It's, I'm simplifying it, but two basic issues. Number one, which madhab do you have access to? Because in any particular country, you will not have access to the same level of quality in all of the madhahib. You'll probably find someone who'll teach you a basic book in every madhab, but you're not going to find someone who's going to teach you one of the complex books of the madhab. If you are in a country where everyone is Shafi'i, you are not going to find someone teaching a complex Hanbali or Hanafi or Maliki book. So the first thing that might help you to choose which one you start studying might be elements of where you are, which country you're in, and what's available to you. So generally, uh, here in the UAE, uh, the Shafi'i Madhab is the more common. However, there are a lot of teachers of the Hanbali Madhab as well, because the Khalij in general, uh, especially because of Saudi Arabia, has had an influx of teachers who teach the Hanbali Madhab. So probably those are the two that you would find easiest. You probably find it difficult to find a complex, to find complex and, and quality teaching in the other two. You might find one teacher, but again, you know, like how much are you going to be able to, how, you know, for example, if that teacher isn't there for you tomorrow, are you going to be able to continue your, your study in the madhab? Probably it's going to be difficult, you know, like in that sense. Of course, some of you come from countries where the, there is another madhab which is prevalent. And again, you know, that is another issue. And the second one, and this is the controversial one, is that in reality, some of the madhahib are, dare I say, better than others. Maybe I should say, 
better for the purpose of learning than others. Okay? And that's subjective. You know, there's no, like, that, that is a subjective issue. Uh, certainly in terms of usul, there is a, like, in terms of usul al-fiqh and principles, there is a huge difference between the Hanafi madhab and the other three. And so, once you learn the Hanafi madhab, and you take that as your, you know, your kind of sort of curriculum, you are going to struggle to transfer to, to any of the other three. Whereas studying any of the other three, it's going to be fairly easy to transfer among the three because generally among those three, they share each other's usul to a certain extent. They share each other's, you know, fundamental rules and principles to a certain extent. Also, there are some madahib where the usul, the, the, the framework, because remember, before the fiqh, you have usul al-fiqh, and the usul al-fiqh is better than the others. And I'm going to you know, my, stick my neck out here and say, in my personal opinion, the Shafi'i madhab has the best in terms of usul al-fiqh. And that is a personal opinion. It, does not, it is not you know, sent down you know, in revelation, or it is not mentioned in a hadith. My personal opinion is that the Shafi'i Madhab has the best in terms of usul, in terms of the development of, of the, the principles that underlie the Madhab. Uh, for me, the reason we're doing the Hanbali Madhab today is because that is the Madhab that I was taught when I studied. That's the one I chose. And I chose it because I think it is close to the quality of the Shafi'iya in usul, but it is also... It was very easy for me to learn since in Medina, all, almost every teacher you have studied and teach, studies and teaches the Hanbali Madhab. So for me, it was easy to learn and it was, you know, it was the best of the, of the available that I had there to learn. But in reality, a good student who studies hard can study any of the four Madhahib and uh, still benefit immensely himself and other people as long as he remembers that famous statement of Abu Hanifa ta'ala, when they came to Abu Hanifa and they said, they asked him a question and he gave him the answer. And they said to him, Is this the truth that there is no doubt about? Abu Hanifa ta'ala, replied, I fear that what I've told you is the falsehood that there is no doubt about. Meaning that you realize that the madhab is not perfect. They ask Abu Hanifa, is this the haqq? He said, I'm scared it's the batil. I'm telling you, it might be the, I might be giving you the batil. I am a human being. I cannot say that what I am giving you is the haqq. I can only say it's the best I know right now, but it may, it may well turn out to be the batil. And that is a very important statement from Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala. I fear that it is the batil that there is no doubt about. And in meaning that don't, you know, don't take that everything that one of us says is the haqq. The madhab is a curriculum to study. It is not the truth. If it were the truth, it would have been sent with Jibreel alayhi salatu That is the haqq. What was sent with Jibreel, that is the haqq. 
As for يعني, the opinion of one scholar here or one scholar there, that is the best effort from a human being. And these were great human beings. They were, you know, they are, as the scholars say, Ahlun. يعني, the Imam is deserving of being followed, deserving of people taking his opinion. Because he's a great scholar. But is he perfect? No, he's not perfect. By no, by no means. And when you're going to come to a book, you know, realistically, you compare Kitab al-Salah in this Hanbali book with something like Sifat Salat al-Nabi by Shaykh al-Albani rahimahullah ta'ala, the description of the Prophet's prayer, and you will see just how far the madhab is away from the way that the Prophet sallallahu prayed. And the reality is that the madhab is a best effort by the Imam, and the Imam only has what is available in his hands. He does not have... And he's not sitting there with a big, you know, database of a hadith except the database that he has in his mind. And he's not sitting there with every opinion in front of him. And he's an imam. And from the clearest evidences of that is that the imam changes his opinion. And says, oh, I was wrong about that. I've changed it. It's this. And then he may again go back. Or he may give, you know, opinions and change them for whatever, you know, whatever reason. So now we're going to come to the books that we're going to choose. So we said we're going to choose the Hanbali Madhab because that is the one that I feel most comfortable teaching. I don't think I would do very well teaching the Hanafi Madhab. I don't think I would do very well teaching the Maliki Madhab. I could probably get away teaching the Shafi'i Madhab with a push, but it wouldn't be amazing. So I felt that I should teach what I'm most comfortable with. This does not mean that you are now all committed and signed up members of the Hanbali Madhab you are welcome to continue studying the books from the madhab that you had prior, chosen prior to this. The purpose of this is to educate you of what the madhab is, what the books are, and how you study. You can then you know, go and take you know, whichever book you want and you decide that you know, I come from this country and in this country this madhab is prevalent. So it makes sense for me to study that madhab so that I can uh, you know, work best within the environment that I, that I have. So... Uh, and we're going to look at now the books which are which could be suitable to be beginner level texts in the Hanbali Madhab from the books which are muta'akhira they're the later later books of the later scholars and why we would choose one over the other and why we came to choose the book that we came to choose and why I'm also going to make a small change in that as well but I'm not changing the book as such kind of it'll, it'll become clear so the first book, for those of you who are the connoisseurs of the Hanbali Madhab, everyone is going to be saying Zad al-Mustaqni'a by Sheikh Musa al-Hajawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, Zad al-Mustaqni'a fi ikhtisar al-Muqni'a. This is the book that you're going to go to Saudi, you're going to find somebody teaching this book in every city, in every town, in every place you're going to find them teaching Zad al-Mustaqni to the point that the scholars said and you got to put a little bit of you know spice on it yani. they said whoever studies as Zad fatwa. he has the right of to give a fatwa yani. Yani whoever studies as Zad properly yani, he has the right to give a fatwa yani in the madhab yani, not outside of the madhab not that he became mujtahid but that within the madhab he has a right to to tell you this is the this is the Hanbali Madhab. However, Zad al-Mustaqni' 
has some difficulties in it. Uh, one of them is it has a lot of uh, rumuz, a lot of sort of times when it's very highly summarized and you have to kind of take a very long time to pull out what has been said. It's not written in nice, clear, you know, easy to understand language. It's, you know, it's very much coded. You know, you have to kind of pull things out. It's not quite, I mean, you can see if you want an example of something which is coded, in my opinion, you can't get anything more coded than the poem of Ash-Shatibiyyah in the Qiraat. I mean, this is like so encoded that you have to take a, you have to take a, a course in, uh, you know, in cryptography to decode this poem. You know, it is like seriously encoded. You know, like it is encoded to a level where a qaf means something and, a, you know, an alif in the word means something. It's in, it is absolutely, a, you know, a cryptographic, you know, text. Zad al-Mustaqni' is not like that, but it, it is, it has a lot of things that if you're not got your eyes open and you're not awake, you might miss them. But there's a bigger problem in, in, in Zad al-Mustaqni' which is not a problem at all, but it's, for, for our purpose it might be, which is that there are around about 300 masail in Zad al-Mustaqni' 300 opinions which go against the what is considered to be the norm in the madhab. And the reason for that is that Sheikh Musa al-Hajawi rahimahullah ta'ala had a lot of love for the opinions of Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala and we know that Sheikh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah was not a person to stick to the madhab if he thought that the madhab wasn't right in a particular issue. And so what you find is that there are a lot of opinions of Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala in there which from a purist point of view are not strictly originally a part of the madhab. The next book which comes to mind and the book that I was first recommended uh, or, or first of that we should say first of all we, should, we need to stop at Musa al-Hajawi. Al-Hajawi rahimahullah ta'ala is the author of Zad al-Mustaqni' but he's also the author of Al-Iqna' and Al-Iqna' is one of the books which is considered to be a fundamental proof in the Hanbali Madhab Al-Iqna' by Al-Hajawi so Al-Iqna' eventually has been kind of summarized down into Zad al-Mustaqni' Then we have the second book, which is Dalil al-Talib. And this is the book that I was recommended. My mentor, who bought me my first set of books, he said to me, you know, you're in a country, you're going to study the Hanbali Madhab, because here you're not going to have a choice. This is the book you should study. Dalil al-Talib. With its explanation, Manar, Al-Sabil fi Sharh al-Dalil by Mar'i bin Yusuf al-Karmi rahimahullah ta'ala and there's a reason why this book is really beloved to, to some of the you know to the people in the madhab but to understand this you have to go to another author and that is the second of the sort of 
imams who establishes the madhab in the later, you know, the books, the books that are considered to establish the madhab. So one of them we said is Al-Iqna' by Al-Hajawi. The second one is a book called Al-Muntaha. Al-Muntaha by Ibn Najjar Al-Fatuhi. And Al-Fatuhi and Al-Hajawi are pretty much came at the same time, more or less, give or take. They're considered to be sort of living at, at around the same time. Al-Hajawi and Al-Fatuhi. And Al-Fatuhi, he wrote Al-Muntaha, Al-Hajawi, he wrote Al-Iqna' And these two books are considered to be, you know, like these major sort of later works in the Hanbali Madhab. However, Ibn Najjar Fatuhi, his book, Al-Muntaha, is preferred over Al-Iqna' for this reason of it being purer to the original Madhab. So it's considered that if you find, if you open Al-Iqna' and you find an opinion and you open Al-Muntaha and you find another opinion, then you should prefer the opinion in Al-Muntaha as being the, you know, the opinion of the Madhab because Al-Hajawi has a preference for the changes that were made by Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala uh, and possibly others. Okay, where are we at now? So we've got Al-Iqna' by Al-Hajawi. We've got Al-Muntaha by Al-Fatuhi. We've got Zad Al-Mustaqni' which came directly from Al-Iqna'. Now we come to Dalil Al-Talib by Mar'i ibn Yusuf Al-Karmi Rahimahullah Ta'ala. What he did is he wrote a book. And the book that he wrote, he called it he wrote a book where he gathered together between those two major books. He said, you can't have two major books in a madhab. You can't have these two books and these two books are going to be fighting against each other. I'm going to write a book which is going to amalgamate these two books together. And he called it غَيَةُ الْمُنْتَهَى فِي الْجَمْعِ بَيْنَ الْإِقْنَاعِ وَالْمُنْتَهَى by Mar'i ibn Yusuf al-Karmi. And from this book, Ghayatul Muntaha, they summarized or he summarized it in a beginner's level book called Dalil al-Talib. However, this book al-Dalil, it is longer than in my opinion, it's longer than a beginner's level text. It's longer than a beginner's level text. Uh, it, it's a little big and it's a little too much detail for a really beginner's level, for a really beginner's level text. So now we come to another person. 
So I'm still, I'm still on the, the books of the Hanabila that we could have chosen. Okay? Uh, and we come to Mansur al-Bahuti. Rahimahullah ta'ala. And Mansur al-Bahuti, he wrote uh, an explanation of Al-Iqna. This, you know, sort of one of the two classical books called Kashaf uh, al-Qana'a. Kashaf al-Qana'a in explaining al- the explanation of Al-Iqna'a. And he wrote Al-Rawd Al-Murbi' The explanation of Zad Al-Mustaqni' So he explained uh, He explained Al-Iqna' And he explained Zad Al-Mustaqni' And he explained Muntaha Al-Iradat by Al-Futuhi He explained He, he basically you know, came along as well And kind of like Mar'i uh, Ibn Yusuf al-Karmi, he had the same idea, but he wrote explanations rather than writing another book in the madhab. He wrote explanations. So he wrote his famous book. Uh, he wrote his famous uh, book, Sharh Muntaha uh, Al-Iradat. And also uh, this issue of Sharh Ma'unat Ulinnuha and some other things. Yani. So we have all these kind of figures and we could have picked any of them and, and picked one of their books to kind of, you know, sit in there somewhere. However, the book that we have chosen, let me... The book that we have chosen is a book called Kafi Al-Mubtadi Min At-Tullab Kafi means something which is sufficient Al-Mubtadi is a beginner and Min At-Tullab from the students so that which is sufficient for the beginning for the beginner level student that which is sufficient for the beginner level student Kafi Al-Mubtadi by Shamsuddin Muhammad ibn Badr ibn Abdul Qadir ibn Muhammad ibn Balaban ibn Balaban al-Ba'li al-Damishqi al-Hanbali rahimahullah ta'ala he died in 1083 after the Hijrah
So he is, as we said, Shams al-Din, Muhammad ibn Badr al-Din, bin Abdul Qadir, bin Muhammad, Balbani, known by Ibn Balaban. Al-Ba'li, al-Damishqi, al-Hanbali, al-Salihi, al-Khazraji. He was born in Damascus in the year 1006 after the Hijrah. He taught in Al-Madrasa Al-Umariyah and was well known for teaching in that well-known famous Madrasa. And he became a Khatib in Al-Jami' Al-Mudaffari, the well-known Jami', the well-known Masjid uh, in, uh, in uh, Damascus, which is known as Jami' Al-Hanabila, the Masjid of the Hanbalis. And he used to, they used to go to him and he used to teach Hanbali fiqh uh, in that. But he was also known to be an expert in other madhahib as well. He went outside of his madhab and he went into many other madhahib uh, as well. Rahimahullah ta'ala. Uh, other than that, as we said, we need to just note that he died in 1083 uh, after the hijrah. Rahimahullah ta'ala. And he wrote this book, Kafi al-Mubtadi. It's short, it's easy to understand, and it's also relatively, or you know, it's reasonably pure to the original madhab. But he wrote another book, and this is where it's going to get uh, a little bit complicated. Because I'm actually going to teach from both of them and I'll explain to you why by quoting the author. The author, Ibn Balaban, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he said, that he had summarized, summarized my book and I have summarized my book, which I have called Kafi al-Mubtadi, which is in the fiqh of Imam Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal, the one who was patient to the ruling or towards the ruling or patient in, uh, upon the ruling of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala al-Malik. Any meaning by that, that Imam Ahmed was patient in the trial, that was when he was put to trial for saying that the Qur'an was the speech of Allah. To make it easier for the beginner to take, any the summary, to make it easier for the beginner to take, and to make it easy to memorize for those who wish to do so, and to make it smaller than the original, yani kafi al-mubtadi. And I have called it akhsar al-mukhtasarat. The shortest of all of the summaries because I have not found anything shorter than it which gathers all of its masail in relation to fiqh from any of the books which have been authored end quote so what this author is saying is I wrote Kafi al-Mubtadi 
And then I saw that there was an opportunity to summarize this book and to make it even shorter. There's one problem with that, which is that Akhsar Mukhtasarat is several pages longer than Kafi al-Mubtadi. But there's a reason for that. And I think in word count, Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat is smaller. But in page count, it's bigger, simply because the author made it really, really easy. He made it like bullet points. Whereas Kafi al-Mubtadi is written in sentences. It's written in, you know, like there are paragraphs that you have to read. Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat is written in bullet points. So it's kind of just, you know, it's all the words are taken out and it's bullet points. But those bullet points, because of the spacing, takes actually more pages than the, than the original. It's also not the case, as is the case with all of all summaries that are written, you know, by, by scholars of Islam. It's not the case that he only summarized. He also added some things into Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat that are not in the original Kafi al-Mubtadi that occurred to him later on. He added them in because obviously you've written a book and then you remember, oh, there is something else in the madhab that I haven't written. And he would add that into the summary. What I'm going to do is I have got a copy of I'm going to read what I'm going to read to you in the class is from Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat. But what I'm going to explain to you is from Kafi al-Mubtadi. And the reason for that is Kafi al-Mubtadi is going to take a lot of time just to translate the sentences. Whereas Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat is going to give us bullet points. So it's so much easier for, for me to explain. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to add the issues in. In other words, the sheikh that I took the explanation from is explaining Kafi al-Mubtadi. So I'm adding the issues that are in Kafi al-Mubtadi that are not mentioned in Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat. And whatever is not mentioned in, in, in Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat, because the author took it out, I'm going to try to, whatever Allah makes easy, I'm going to try to, to bring it in for you. And I'm going to try to sort of make sure that you get the best of both. But in my opinion, I think that Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat is going to be better, inshallah, as a book to, to teach from because of the bullet, the nature of it being in bullet points and it being just easier to... Um, and that doesn't mean that the author, I don't know, I haven't seen the... I haven't even looked at the... Uh, maybe I can look now at the uh, copy of the author's handwriting. Did he ever write it in bullet points or did he just write it in paragraphs and then the, the, the printer came and put it in bullet points? But the nice copy that I have is in bullet points, so... We'd have a look at the makhtout. I didn't even I didn't even look at it to be honest. The one that, that usually in the front of the book they put a picture. Yeah, in the picture there's no bullet points any. So the the one that's in the author's handwriting, he doesn't put he doesn't put bullet points, he just summarizes the he just writes it writes less. But the the, the printer has kindly put bullet points for us. Um, so that makes it nice and easy for us to teach this book from. And that's inshallah ta'ala what we're going to do. So you're, you're, what you're going to be learning is Kafi al-Mubtadi, but we're going to be reading from the shorter version by the same author, Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat, because Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat is 
easier to read from and reading from Kafi al-Mubtadi bearing in mind that neither of them have been translated into English is just going to make my life incredibly difficult so instead I'm going to read from the bullet point version the short version and then what I'm going to do from the bullet point version is I'm going to explain to you the extra issues that come from the that come from the other version now I think I could probably for many of you if you have a reasonable amount of Arabic even if it's just at a basic level I could and I will inshallah ta'ala post this book on Kalima's website because I think if you have a, even a reasonable amount of Arabic it's so easy to follow because it's so much in bullet points that you can actually probably bring a copy with you I mean again it would be great if it was translated into English uh, it isn't uh, but I think if some of you here have you know, a fair amount of Arabic. You're not maybe fluent in Arabic, but you have like a, a reasonable amount of Arabic. You can probably uh, grab a copy. We can probably give you a copy and you can probably follow it because, you know, for example, the first word, al-miya'u There are three types of water. So, I mean, you know, those kind of like, that's on one line, you know? So it's kind of easy to understand even if the Arabic isn't quite 100%. So I will do that. We're not going to do that many pages today because... Today was about setting the, the understanding of what the book is. And as I said, I would love to have been able to have gone through the whole book from beginning to end. Realistically, we aren't going to be able to finish 350 pages of Masail in seven weeks or six and a half weeks or whatever we have. But what we will do is in the second subject, yani the subject which is coming in three weeks' time or two weeks' time, whatever it is, we're going to go to uh, Al-Mu'amalat because the books of fiqh are basically divided into two. They're divided into ibadat, acts of worship, and then mu'amalat, transactions and dealings. And in this uh, subject... We're going to cover the introduction and we're going to cover the ibadat, some of the ibadat. We won't be able to cover every mas'ala, like we won't be able to cover all of wudu and all of salah and all of zakah and all of fasting and all of hajj because realistically it's going to be, there are, there's a lot to cover there. The purpose behind this, so you understand, is to give you guys the ability to be able to study this kind of book and to understand where it fits in and how it will benefit you. So you're going to see the difference and especially those of you who attend my Bulugh al-Maram class, you're going to be going over things you've already heard because we've done these issues in Bulugh al-Maram but at the same, and those videos are available on Kenima's YouTube as well. But at the same time, you're going to hear it from a different angle because you're going to hear it without the Dalil, no Dalil. And you're going to hear it from the point of view of the Hanbali madhab itself. And so it's going to give you a different perspective of something you've already heard. Again, if some of you want to you know, take this from a different perspective, then you're more than welcome to go to Kalima's YouTube, go to Bulugh al-Maram, the, the book that we explain, explain every Wednesday in Al-Barsha, in Sharifat al-Attar Masjid. And you can actually hear these same issues explained from the point of view of the hadith outside of the madhab. Yani because we don't limit ourselves to, to the madhab in Bulugh al-Maram. So you, might, you can hear, you know, sort of 
different things. Now that brings us an interesting uh, question before we start. And that question is, is it okay for one of you here today who hears something, an issue, a matter, and when we say a mas'ala, we mean like a question that is asked in fiqh, like is it halal to do this or what is the ruling of drinking you know, from this or what is the ruling of making wudu with seawater? This is a mas'ala. If one of you hears a mas'ala today that you never, you don't know any dalil for and you didn't know the answer to it before, you don't have an opinion right now, is it allowed for you to follow what you find in this book? In other words, put it a different way, is it okay for you to make taqlid of what you find in this book for those matters that you personally don't have an opinion on right now? You didn't know about them before. Your teacher never told you about them before. And you never knew any dalil to the contrary. You don't know any sunnah to the contrary. The first time you're going to hear, for example, are we allowed to drink from the wells of Thamud other than the well which is called the well of the camel? Maybe most of you have not heard this issue before, right? Any of you tried to drink from the wells of Thamud? Probably not, okay? So maybe one or two of you, maybe there are people here, mashallah, who have studied extensively, who I'm sure have heard of this issue, but I'm saying majority of people here have not probably thought about drinking from the well of Thamud. And the author tells you it is haram to drink from the well of Thamud or the wells of Thamud except for the well that is called Bi'run Naqa, the well of the camel. Are you allowed to follow that or do you have to wait for the dalil? The answer is, and Allah knows best, that it is permissible for you to make taqlid of that until such a time when one of two things happens. Either you study the issue with a teacher and your teacher gives you the correct opinion or you get to the stage where you study the dalil for yourself and you reach an ability to weigh the evidence and you say that in my opinion, the correct opinion is for the evidence is this. But initially, if you come across something in this book, which you have never come across before, and you have never, you know, you've never thought about it before, you can, if you wish, uh, yani, take that on board and implement it until such a time that you realize, or you come across anything to contradict it, or anything that you realize is not, you know, is not correct. Yani. So the author begins Kitab al-Tahara. After saying Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, he begins with Kitab al-Tahara. And what I want you to take from this, I'm not going to explain every single word. I'm not going to go over you know, all of this detail. It's the book of purification. A book is something which gathers together everything on a particular topic in one place. That's why the meaning of kataba is jama'a. To gather everything together. So a kitab is a jami'a. It gathers everything in one place. It's something which is written down and it gathers everything in one place on a particular topic. The topic is at-tahara, purification. And the reason why, and, and this order is pretty much agreed upon in the books of fiqh, that the books of fiqh start with 
tahara then they start then they move on to salah and so on there's an order and they're split into you know the 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 primary acts of worship you know the five pillars and you know those main acts of worship and then the mu'amalat you know marriage and divorce and trading and you know all that kind of stuff in the second half why do the books of fiqh begin with kitab at-tahara why don't they begin with the shahadatan for example well first of all they begin with kitab at-tahara because they are relating to fiqh and fiqh in terms of istilah doesn't include in this point here and be careful here because I'm not going to get myself in trouble from an aqidah point of view but from this point here of what we're doing in terms of a, a terminology standpoint aqidah is dealt with in other books aqidah is dealt with in other books in reality that's probably not a valid uh, way of looking at it and that has issues with it because there are and we've talked about those when we did al-waraqat we've talked about the problem of removing fiqh from aqidah and the fact that and removing aqidah from fiqh and the fact that this was deliberately done in order to remove the belief of people like imam ahmed from their madhab so that people could take their madhab on who had deviant beliefs that had nothing to do with the imam and that is why today if you ask people from different groups and sects about their imam for example abu hanifa they will say we are Hanafi in fiqh and we are maturidi in aqidah and so they will they will openly say we do not follow the aqidah of abu hanifa we do not because and he, he's a great imam but we don't know it no way no way we don't don't tell me about the aqidah of abu hanifa i don't want to hear so this is a very you know sort of deliberate thing that was done but my point is that from the point of view of of fiqh as a from terminology wise any the books of fiqh deal with purification and prayer and all of those things and generally there are other books that deal with what you have to believe so they begin with the book of purification because after the shahadatain the most important pillar from the pillars of islam is the salah and we have a beautiful principle in fiqh ma la wajibu illa bihi wajib whatever is required to fulfill an obligation is itself an obligation what is required to fulfill the salah is at-tahara purification and the author in kafi al-mubtadi he doesn't mention the definition here in akhsar uh, al-muhtasarat but in kafi al-mubtadi he mentions uh, a definition and we just give you a rough a rough definition of at-tahara being Usually we add that. Removing the state of impurity. So tahara, purification, means to remove a state of impurity and those things which are similar. What do they mean by those things which are similar? What do you mean the state of impurity and those things which are similar? For example, washing the dead body. And you're not washing the dead body to remove a state of impurity, but it's similar to that because you do the same thing. 
The ghusl of the dead body is the same as the ghusl that you do on Jum'ah. But the purpose is not quite the same purpose. So they, they put that in. So removing a state of impurity and similar things and removing impurities and removing unclean things because tahara involves two branches one branch is getting rid of the state of impurity like being in wudu and ghusl and one is izalatun najasa getting rid of the impure substances like removing you know uh, removing urine and su such things any from clothing and from you know the the body and from the prayer place with water or a substitute for it. The reason they mention with water is that the asal, the basic principle, is that you remove impurity and you remove a state of impurity with water, but you also may use an alternative. And the alternative, for example, in this case is generally a torab dirt or dust or soil or sand and we will come to that so the author gave us kitab al-tahara and he said there are three types of water so he's beginning by talking about al-miyah the types of water Again, because logically, if you take it from the beginning and you take it from, you know, the point that you to pray, you have to make wudu. To make wudu, you have to be able to, to, to use water. You have to know what water is suitable for the wudu. And that's generally the books of fiqh. The very first thing that they will deal with is water. There are three types of water. Notice, no dalil, no ikhtilaf. Not that there are two opinions from the scholars. One said there are three types. One said there are, are two types. No, there are three types of water. That's it. The first type is tahur. And we're going to use the word in English purifying. Not pure. Purifying. And this is the water which remains as it was created. So, so far, all the author said is, the book of purification, there are three types of water. The first, purifying. And it is the one that remains as it was created. So, he's defining that. In Kafi al-Mubtadi, he gives examples. So in Akhsar al-Mukhtasarat, he took the examples out. But in Kafi al-Mubtadi, he gives some examples. So what is water that has remained as it was created? Including water from the wells, rainwater, river water, sea water, snow, uh, melted ice. All of these are water that have remained as they were. As Allah Azza wa Jal created them. So first of all, to help you guys out, 
Let me first of all tell you what, because it might get confused. The problem is it can easily get confusing. So let's just start by talking about what the three types of water are, just by name. Just so you got water, one, two, three. One, purifying. Two, pure. And three, impure. And there are two ways of drawing that out. One way is to divide water into purifying and non-purifying. So you say water either purifies or it doesn't purify. The water that purifies is only the first category, purifying. And the water that doesn't purify is either of the second two pure or impure or you can divide it into usable and unusable usable water is either purifying or pure and unusable water is the water that is impure so there are two ways of looking at it two ways of branching it out the first way, the way the author does, is just to list, or there's three ways. The first way, the way the author does, is just to list them. Three types of water, purifying, pure, and impure. Tahurun, tahirun, najis. Tahurun, tahirun, najis. And there are two other ways you could break that down. You could break it into water which is suitable for purification or unsuitable for purification. So suitable for purification would be only the first category. And unsuitable for purification would be either of the second two. Or you could say usable and unusable. Usable water is any of the first two. is usable, not for purification, but you can use it for, you know, you can drink it or whatever. And unusable water is only the third category. Now within this first category, and he said it is the water that is that remains upon its uh, remains as it was created. The author, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he starts to mention four rulings of this water so this water here that is purifying has four rulings according to the Hanabila and I told you the fourth one is an absolute gem the fourth one is and when you hear it's just it, it's unique yani. like you get some of these in every madhab you, you just get some you know some of these yani. But there are four rulings of pure purifying water. This is number category number one. There are four rulings, four ahkam. The first is permissible to use. So that is purifying water, which is permissible, mubah, for you to use in your wudu. And then there is purifying water which is makruh for you to use in your wudu. 
And then there is purifying water, which is haram, muharram, for you to use in your wudu. And there is purifying water, here we go, which is permissible for a woman to use, but not a man. And I haven't got that yet. It's, I'm gonna, it's, it's a mouthful. This one is a really, like, it's a really difficult mas'ala. So, again, you know, notice how they're breaking it down, keeping it easy for you. Purifying water, one, two, three, four. This water, that is as it is originally created, the sea water, the well water, the river water, the streams, you know, the rain water, the melted snow and ice, this water could be mubah, makruh, muharram, or mubah linnisa dun al rijal. All right. So, as for the one that is mubah, permissible for everyone, it is what doesn't fall into any of the next three categories. And I know that's a terrible definition because that's a definition by absence, but wallahi, it's the easiest one. Yani it is the water that remains upon its original state and doesn't have any reason for it to be makruh or haram or only for the women. Yani it's most of the water, yani the majority, it's the default. What about the water that is makruh? He says the water that is makruh, it's purifying. It's, you know, you should be able to use it for wudu, but it's makruh. Is water and what does it mean, makruh? That if you don't use it, yani there is a reward, yani there is no punishment for there is no punishment in it for, for using it. Yani. But not using it is better. There is a reward in that. Yani there is not there is no if you use it, you don't get a sin, but you ha, not using it is not using it is better. What is this water? It is it is a water which has been changed by something that hasn't dissolved into it. Water that has been changed by something that hasn't dissolved into it. Like oil. So oil and water, yani, what I know from my limited, yani, whatever study I've done, oil and water don't really mix. That's the traditional yani, belief. Uh, so oil in water, the water is still water, but there's oil in it too. Okay, The oil did not dissolve into the water like tea would dissolve and mix into the water and the water becomes tea. It didn't become tea. It's still water, but it's water with oil in it. And according to the Hanabila, rahimahumullah ta'ala, this is makruh. What about the water that is haram? And the author clearly says here, muharramun la yarfa'ul hadath wa yuzilul khabath. He said, this water is haram it does not remove a state of impurity whoa you know sea water pure water rain water that doesn't you can't make wudu with what is that he said 
there are two or there are there are uh, there are two that he mentions one is al maghsub stolen water and this is important because actually uh, this has a, a really practical aspect to it somebody who takes water from someone else without their permission and he, and steals the steals the water yani like Maybe say, oh, it's only a bottle of water. Look, I just take it, I make wudu, inshallah, you know, he'll get the ajr. That this water does not validate the wudu. The wudu is invalid with this water because the water is stolen. The other issue the scholars mention under this is water which says for drinking only. Water which says for drinking only. Again, according to the Hanabila, this water that says for drinking only, your wudu is invalid if you use it. Because the water has been given as a waqf for drinking and you have effectively stolen it to make wudu with. Because the owner of the water has specifically given that water for people to drink and you have basically effectively stolen that water and done something with it that the author did that the owner of the waqf did not give you permission to do again this is al madhab al hanbali according to the hanbali madhab and then the author adds another example of haram purifying water and he this is he only mentions it in akhsar mukhtasarat he doesn't mention it in the original and that is the the wells of Thamud apart from the well of Annaqa. And you know, for those of you who are interested, there is a hadith in this regard. Uh, there is a hadith in this regard, and, and you know, on personal level, I think this is probably the stronger the strongest opinion yeah, that it is not allowed to make wudu with the wells of the water of the water from the wells of Thamud except for one well which the Prophet ﷺ called it the well of the she camel yani the well that the camel of uh, the, the she camel that came out to Thamud the, the she camel of Salih that well that the ca she camel used to drink from all of the other wells it is not permissible for you to uh, for you to use them in uh, it is not permissible for you to use that water yani the water itself is fine according to the Hanbali Madhab in some of the other madhahib, the water is najis, the water is impure. But in the Hanbali madhab, the water is fine, nothing wrong with it. The water you take out of the other wells is the same as the water you take out of the naq as well. But that there is a hadith, there is a reason why you cannot drink and why it is haram to drink from any of those other wells. And you can only drink from the well that is known as bi'run naqa when you are in that place of tamud. So this is we said the makruh and the muharram now we come for the, th the, the fourth one he doesn't mention it in akhsar muhtasarat okay it is the water that has come from the body of a woman making purification in private in complete privacy from a state of impurity 
this water can only be used by another woman. Okay, go through that again. It is water that has come from a woman and that woman is making purification because of hadith. Yani because she's not making, she's not, uh, she's not just getting cold or, you know, if she's just getting cold, anyone can use the water. She's using that water because of, she has a need for wudu or ghusl. Even if she has a need for wudu and she's washing her hands, you can use the water according to them. But she is using the water to make wudu or ghusl. And she is doing so in privacy. Meaning that no other person except for a child under the age of discernment can see her. It doesn't matter if there's a baby there, but if anyone else can see her, everyone can use the water. She's alone, absolutely alone, and nobody can see her, and she's making wudu or ghusl, and that water is left over. According to the Hanabila, the opinion of the madhab is that that water is only permissible for another woman to use and not for a man. But they say it's still purifying. The water is, is, is fine, there's nothing wrong with it. But that water is, can only be used by a woman and not by a man. And they have their reasons for that. But as I said, it's a, it's a strange one to hear. When you hear it, and you'll find these things in the books of the Madahib, you'll find certain you know, things that the outcome, it certainly sounds very, very strange indeed. We've now finished, not the class, don't worry. We've finished category number one, which is the purifying water. And we said the purifying water has four rulings. Permissible, makruh, muharram, and mubah, linnisa duna rijal. Permissible for women to use, but not men. We covered what each one of those are. Again, please guys, this is according to the Hanabila. And this is not necessarily my personal opinion of these issues. And we're not doing it for that. We're doing it to study the madhab as a madhab. Okay. Secondly, the water that is pure. And this water does not remove impurities. And it does not remove a state of impurity from a person. It doesn't give you wudu or ghusl. It doesn't give you wudu. It doesn't give you ghusl. And it doesn't remove impurities. And this is really important. Because as we're going to see, if you wash, if you have akramakumullah, urine on your thawb, and you wash it, with washing up powder and you don't rinse then your thawb is not possible to pray in according to the Hanabila. only if you rinse it with water so just keep those issues in mind so pure water pure water is suitable for use but it is not suitable for 
are not suitable for wudu or ghusl and it's not suitable for removing impurities. Okay, would it remove impurities? It will clean impurities but not remove them. Okay, be careful about that one. It will clean impurities but not remove them. Yeah, and your thobe will come out bright, shining white. You know like the adverts tell you on the TV. It will come out with a bright shine. But it's absolutely haram to pray in it. Because you removed the, 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 the impurity but you didn't, you, you, you cleaned the impurity but you didn't remove it. It can only be removed with purifying water. And it can only be removed with the first category. But that's not a problem since our washing machines and everything else, all of them rinse afterwards. Yani. They all rinse with water. But if you didn't rinse with water, then according to the madhab, you cannot pray even though your thawb is absolutely clean, you can't pray. Because, or you can't pray in it because you have cleaned it but you haven't purified it. The author mentions some examples. He doesn't mention rulings. Why? Because there's only one ruling. The ruling is you can't use it for wudu and you can't use it for ghusl and you can't use it for removing impurities. That, that's the ruling. There's only one ruling. It's not like where there's haram and makruh and whatever. There's only one ruling. You can do what you want with it, but you can't use it for wudu and ghusl and whatever else removing impurities but you can drink it you can give it to your friends to drink you can serve it to your guests you can give it to your animals but you can't use it for worship and that is first of all المتغير بممازج طاهر that which has dissolved into it a pure substance so let's take a classic example of that, tea. The tea has kind of infused into the water and it's pure, tea is, tea is absolutely pure and the tea has infused into the water so you can't use this water anymore for your wudu or your ghusl but you can drink it if you want to give it to your guests, you can. If you want to, you know, give it to your animals, you can, but you can't use it for your acts of worship. However, the Hanabila, rahimahumullah ta'ala, they have a condition for this. There are some kinds of mixing that they allow. And the mixing they allow is the mixing that it is not possible to prevent okay is it possible to prevent your water becoming tea absolutely you know it is absolutely possible to prevent your water from becoming tea however it is not possible for example to stop uh, a river or a stream from the water taking on some of the characteristics of the land. You know, a particular smell, a particular taste, um, you know, things like the mineral content in the water, 
you can't, you can't change, those are things you can't change. If the river passes through certain uh, marshland, it's going to take on a certain color. If the river passes through a certain, you know, if certain leaves fall into the river from the tree, those leaves are going to give a certain taste or a certain smell uh, to the water. Like, I mean, you might have like orange blossom fall on this, you know, well. And this well is covered in orange blossom and the well starts to smell of, you know, oranges, you know, like, an, and like flowers. So you can't, you can't prevent that from happening. And so they don't, uh, they don't have a problem with that. Included in that is algae. They don't have a problem with algae, what they call... Um, What's the name of it? It's gone out of my mind now what they call it. But anyways, uh, algae uh, and, uh, you know, things like that, leaves and the dirt, you know, when the river turns brown because of the, you know, the, the earth that it's passed by and some of the dirt is kind of, you know, sort of mixed into the river and the river is kind of brownie color, but you couldn't really avoid that from happening, then in their mind that is not an issue. Likewise, included in that, which is not an issue, water which has had sea salt added to it, or dirt or soil added to it. So I come around with a, you know, a pinch of sea salt and put it into a cup of water. They said only sea salt, not, not uh, rock salt. Why? because sea salt is originally from the water in the first place, so you're just putting it back where it came from. And why not soil and dirt? Because soil and dirt are also purifying. They're not pure, they're purifying because you use them for tayammum. So soil and dirt are purifying. So for that reason, they said that soil and dirt and uh, you know, a small amount of, uh, of uh, sea salt does not stop the water being purifying, even if you added it yourself. You know, even if you added it yourself. Likewise, okay, no, we'll, we'll come to the next one that he mentions, so we don't, we will not confuse it. Uh, he also said the water which is tahir, but is not suitable for wudu and ghusl, is the water which is a small amount. Don't worry, they're going to define what a small amount is. Water which is a small amount and has been used already to remove impurity. So water which is a small amount and has been already used to remove impurity. Water which is a small amount and has been already used to remove impurity. That means that it's already come from the body of somebody. I think the example of the woman earlier might be referring to the water that's left in the tub, not the water that comes from the from her arms, yani. But the water, uh, 
that comes from her arms or his arms in wudu and ghusl that water that comes from their body if the water is a small amount they consider it to be tahir you know it can be used for you can give it to the animals to drink or whatever but it is not suitable for another person to take it and to make ghusl or to make wudu with it They add two more examples. One is if someone puts their hands into a vessel of water after waking up from sleep at night. If they wake up from sleep during the day, it doesn't matter. You get these in the madahib, and you get like, you know, you wake up like from an eight hour sleep in the day, it's fine. But you wake up from an eight hour sleep at night, no, you can't use the water. Like you get these, that's what I mean by you get these kind of like, you know, little idiosyncrasies and strange kind of things crop up. They have a reason for it, but again, you have to question, you know, somebody sleeps eight hours in the day and then comes and puts his hand in a bucket of water and you can use that, but somebody sleeps eight hours at night and puts their hand in a bucket of water and you can't use that. But anyway, the person who wakes up from sleep and puts their hand into a vessel of water without washing their hand first outside, this water is pure but you can't be used for it can't be used for wudu and it can't be used for ghusl and it can't be used for removing najasat likewise and this is a little bit complicated one the last wash done in a separate place when cleaning impurities after the impurity has already gone so there are some impurities that you clean seven times after four or five times the impurity is gone the last wash you do it somewhere else you know like you the last wash and there's nothing that always clean you know but you had to do it seven times ritually you had to do seven times the seventh time you do it somewhere else only the seventh not the sixth time i told you about these idiosyncrasies you're going to get them yeah not the sixth time not the fifth time only the seventh time that water that comes off from the seventh time is pure, but you can't use it for wudu and you can't use it for ghusl. That is considering that the najasa went, not if the najasa stayed, that, that the impurity is gone. You know, it went the second time or the third time, but you had to wash it seven times, two, three, four, five, six. The seventh one, you take the thawb or the whatever somewhere else and you wash it the seventh time. That seventh time, the water that comes off it is pure but not purifying is pure but not purifying and they also said the water that Uh, something uh, falls into it but that but nothing changes about it I mean the water you know like something has gone into it but nothing nothing about that water has changed uh, and we're going to come to that in a, in a moment we're going to come to that in a moment the third category is impure water the third category is impure water which is haram to use 
for anything at all, it's haram to use for ghusl, it's haram to use for wudu, it's haram to drink, it's haram to feed your animals. And unless it's a necessity, of course, and this is water which has been changed by something impure. Water which has been changed by something impure and they add a condition to that. We're not talking about when you are cleaning najasa from something. We're not talking about when you are... The discussion here is not when you are cleaning something impure off of your thobe because they mentioned the seventh time that you clean something impure and the stuff is gone. That's not the issue here. The issue is water that has been changed by something impure. Water that has been changed by something impure. And for the Hanabila, they say, if any of the characteristics of the water change, the taste, the smell, or the color, and the thing which caused that change is impure, the water is impure whether it is large or small. To the point that some of them said, even if the sea, and this could happen, you go to the sea and there is sewage in the sea. It's the sea, I mean it's huge. But this particular area you're in, there is sewage in the sea. The smell is bad, if you put it in your mouth the taste would be bad, and the color is, has changed. Any one of those three, then that's it, your, your, your sea water is impure even if it is a huge amount of water. Even if it is a huge amount of water. Or, if it is a small amount of water, and any najasa falls into it at all, even if the attributes don't change. So the Hanabila said, the large amounts of water, the attribute has to change. So for example, someone goes to the bathroom in the sea. Okay, you come back 10 minutes later. Is there any change to the sea? The sea is exactly as it was. Nothing changed. So for the Hanabila, this water is purifying because there is no change. I mean, you came five minutes later. There is no, the water is, the sea is the sea. The, it's dissipated everything out. You know, across its huge vastness and there is no, I mean, there is no water there left anymore. There is nothing there to be, you know, there is, not, there is no najasa left there anymore. But they said, if you had a small amount of water, let's say that you had a bucket. And in that bucket, a single drop of urine fell. There is no change to the bucket. The bucket is as it was. You know, you, could, you couldn't even tell with laboratory equipment. But you know that it happened. For them, the water is impure because it's a small amount. As for the large amount, they said for the large amount, there has to be a change in color or smell or taste. If there is no change, you can use it. But the small amount, they said no. Small amount, if anything falls into it, you have to discard that water. Two more issues before we finish this chapter. 
very small. They said, and this is in addition to what is in Kafi al-Mubtadi, he said, Jari there is no difference in this between running water and still water. Yani in this one drop of najasa. So in other madahib, you might find that they say that if the, if the water is running, is moving, you can use it. But you can't use it if it's still water. Like if it's in a bucket, you can't use it. But if it's a, you know, a little a, a trickling you know, stream or something like that, you can use it. Here he says, in our madhab, there is no difference between running water and still water in this distinction between large and small when the najasa falls into it. Then he goes on to kindly explain what the difference is between a large amount and a small amount. So bear in mind, in, a, in this madhab, the large amount has to change color or taste or smell. The small amount, as soon as you know something impure fell into it, that's it. Even if it's perfectly clean. Okay? It becomes haram to drink. It becomes haram to give to someone. It becomes yani, completely haram to use. Okay. What is the difference between a large amount and a small amount? What is the difference between a large amount and a small amount? He said, a large amount in our madhab is qullatan to qullah. To qullah. It's an amount mentioned in the hadith. And he tells you what a qullah is. He said it is a hundred ritul and seven, yani a hundred and seven, yani a hundred and seven ritul and a seventh of a ritl. Any on a hundred and seven and a seventh. But that doesn't help us at all. Because I don't have the slightest clue what a ritl is uh, in terms of modern times. However, they have kindly told us what it is in liters. So that is helpful. In liters, two kulla is 307 liters approximately. And they actually give this to ulama, they give it in, in artal, and they also give it in, in volume. And by volume, it is the water which is a dhira', a forearm, by a forearm, by a forearm. Yani a forearm cubed. A forearm cubed. That is the water which is, which uh, yani they consider. It is a forearm cubed one forearm by one forearm by one uh, forearm a forearm cubed and they differ over how long a forearm is but it's between 45 and 50 centimeters so at the smaller amount 45 centimeters cubed uh, and uh, at the larger amount 50 centimeters uh, cubed and two kulla is therefore, as we said, two kulla is around about 307 uh, liters. And therefore, 307 liters of water, that is what is considered to be kafir, a large amount of water. Anything less than that, anything less than that is considered to be qalil or yasir, a small amount. Therefore, this small amount 
you do not have to, or you, you have to, if anything impure falls into it, you have to discard the water, you can't use it. However, if the large amount, over 307 liters, if that large amount, uh, something falls into it, you don't have to uh, throw that water away unless one of its characteristics change. The very last thing that he mentions before going on to the topic of al-aniya, the vessels, which is the next topic in the in the uh, in the order of fiqh, any. Uh, he goes on to talk about what happens if you mix up, you have two buckets of water, and you don't remember which bucket you fell something impure into or you don't remember which bucket is tahir and which bucket is tahur what do you do so he said if you don't know which bucket is tahir and which bucket is tahur then you take one hand you make wudu from alternate sources so this is when you you don't know which bucket is purifying category one and you don't know which bucket is pure category two so what you do is you take one handful from one and then when you do your second wash you do the handful from the other and that way you will be guaranteed to have used the correct water at one point but what do you do if you know someone comes and says oh you know i i i something i i put something in that bucket that bucket i was using it someone used it for the bathroom and you okay which bucket and he goes uh I'm sorry, I don't know which bucket. It was just, it's one of those two buckets. And then you filled it with water and you've brought it back. We don't know which bucket it is. And there's no difference in taste. There's no difference in smell. There's no difference in color. They both look the same. But one of those buckets is not allowed to use. He says, in this place, you are required to leave both of them. You're not allowed to use either of them. You must throw both of them away. And if you don't have water, you must make tayammum. That is an example. So this is when you have two buckets, okay, of water. One of them is pure and one is purifying. Okay, so in that case, one of them has, let's say, it's difficult because if you had tea in it, you would, you would know which one was tea. But you need something that you don't know which one is which. Like let's just say for example some like some chemical or something is in there that's mixed in and you don't know which one is which. So what you do is you make wudu alternate. One, one. Now there comes another situation. You have two empty buckets. And you didn't know, but in the nighttime at the tent, someone used the bucket to relieve themselves and they cleaned the bucket out, but it's it's not clean. It's not fully clean. Then in the morning, you took those two buckets and you filled them up with water. They're identical buckets. You don't know which bucket is clean and which bucket isn't. So you, you smell, you know, you kind of try and find any way to distinguish, but you can't find any way. It was dark. The guy has no idea which bucket he used. And you have no idea which bucket it was. What do you do? You leave both of them. You throw both of the water away because if you use one hand from one and one hand from the other, you're going to be doing something haram for sure because one of them is definitely impure. According to this, you know, the, these opinions that are being given us out. So you have to throw them both away 
and make you can't give them both you can't give them to your animals to drink from you throw them both away and you make tayammum that is the example of one chapter one tiny chapter from and that's a page and a half it took a page and a half from kafi al-mubtadi it took a page and a half of 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 of, of studying out of and the total number of pages i have in this book is about 300 and something roughly so what we're going to do is we're just going to take examples from it you know we've done an example from the chapter of water we're going to do another example or two from different you know different basically different chapters and what have you so we can understand the benefit now i hope you guys have seen that we didn't mention any evidence and we didn't mention any ikhtilaf and we didn't mention any other madhab so that has a benefit in it when you're learning because you're able to remember these categories very well they're super easy to memorize in arabic you know it's very 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 easy to to memorize later on as you study the evidence and if you guys just want to go and just watch the first two videos of Bulugh al-Maram from the Kalima YouTube you'll see a whole different picture where we talk about the Dalil and why and what's a Qulla and why is it there and what did the Prophet mean and is the Hadith Sahih or not Sahih and it, you know and we go into like what do all the Madhab say and what do the Shafi'iyya say and what do the big difference in what we did just now both of them have benefit don't exclude yourself from one of them because both of them have an immense benefit in them this gives you more tarkiz concentration on the issue you know you study Bulugh al-Maram like we did you will not remember that there are three types of water and this is this and this is because it's a different it's a different way of looking at it here you'll always remember there are three types of water purifying pure and impure the purifying water has four rulings either it's allowed or either it's makruh or either it's haram or either it's allowed for women but not for men and uh, you pure water the examples of it are one two three four water that mixes with something that is pure and and all of these things you can remember them very easily it's very easy to remember them but of course you have no dalil and no idea whether it's the right answer or not yet but as you study through the madhab and you develop yourself, you'll become aware of the dalil, aware of differences of opinion within the madhab, aware of the tarjih, the correct opinion, and ultimately aware of the other madhabs and able to choose the, madhab, the opinion within the madhahib or outside of the madhahib, which is the correct opinion in this particular mas'ala. So this is about separating your knowledge, about being mature enough to say, this is what I'm studying from the point of view of the madhab and this is what I believe to be the correct opinion and you have a separate any stream in your mind between those two things and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best